welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. Hey church, uh, I know I've said this before, but I love that graphic. I love that uh, we have that to enter into uh, this series every every week through February called You Live What You Love. We've been in the Good Samaritan passage. We've been in this passage in Luke 10 uh, that, that highlights the, the great commandment. And we've just been going piece by piece. Each sermon, again, is building on the previous ones. We've talked about different commitments and... Uh, and uh, last week we talked about marriage and family. Uh, we've we focused on the heart. This week we're focusing on the soul. And and the commitment here uh, that we're focusing on is one of faith or or a philosophy of life. And uh, and that's that's kind of what we mean by faith or how how you live your life. So uh, what what is soul? You know what what is that? What do we mean by that? What is a soul? Uh, what do I mean? What does this passage mean when it says, "Love the Lord your God with all your soul"? I love Dallas Willard's definition of soul here. He says it's that part of a person that integrates all the other dimensions of your being to make one life. It's that part of the person that integrates all the other dimensions of your being to make one life. Integration is key. It is vital. It is so important when we're thinking, when we're talking about soul. And last week we talked about, we kind of, uh, uh, in the latter part of that sermon, we ended on and talked about trauma. And as trauma is one of those things that ravages and divides and dissects the soul. But if we're to love the Lord our God with all of our soul, integration has to happen. Integration is key. So when we talk about soul and we talk about faith and this faith commitment, uh, you're really talking about, like I said, a philosophy of life, a philosophy of living, how you live, which is the series. It's you live uh, what you love. But remember, uh, you know, in this graphic, now, we've had you focus on different segments of it, but this week, we really wanted you to focus on the entire piece. Like, like this is an art piece, right? This is a, an entire piece of art because of this idea of integration. Instead of focusing on one piece here, one piece there, we wanted you to see the whole thing in all of its fullness and for you to really kind of focus on the forest for, for the trees here. And this is kind of coming off of uh, Ephesians 2.10 where God says that we are his masterpiece. We're his workmanship. That, that word in the Greek is we're his masterpiece. We're his, we're his like most beautiful picture of art. And that's you. That's me. We are that. We are his part of his human creation in that. And he says we're prepared for good works to walk in them. And so this part of this masterpiece, you know, you living what you love. Remember from the first week, you have an eternal vocation. That vocation has experienced God's love, and it's eternal. That vocation is not defined by what you do. 
It's defined by who you are. That's key for today. That's key for this passage. That's key for what we're going to talk about. But guys, in our society, uh, especially Western society uh, in particular for us, um, we're, we're not great on integration. We're, we're, we're really good on specialization. We, we tend to focus on segmentation. We tend to silo things. We tend to segregate things. And we're not great at integrating things. Guys, even our entire educational system is focused on specialization. And it forms us. Like we talked about the past couple or last week, you know, the things that form us and that deform us, uh, we have to look at education as a whole. I mean, even when you think about the holistic person, we used to do that. Education used to focus on the soul. Uh, when the Renaissance happened, it focused on humanism. And, and guys, you hear humanism, and already you have probably some, some red flags going off. Humanism, when it started, was just saying, how do we integrate the entire person as a whole? We're not talking about secular humanism yet. That came in the mid-20th mid century. We're talking about 14th century Renaissance, when, <clears throat> when we're trying to figure out who we are and, and how we're integrated fully as beings. And, and that led to a whole bunch of other things, but finally, eventually, a couple centuries later, secular humanism comes up, and it says, okay, well, how do we build on humanism and these ideals and this integration, uh, but how do we do it without God? And that's probably what you're, <laughs> you, you maybe had some red flags about. That's secular humanism. That's how do we do this without God? And, and so that emphasized uh, some integration, but then we started moving away from that. And somewhere along the way, us as Christians, we even lost sight of the soul. We reduced the soul to just the spiritual. So we lost an integration piece. And then we reduced the spiritual to just religion. And we lost a lot when it's, very, it's a very reductionistic view of the soul. When, like Dallas Willard says, the soul integrates all dimensions to make one life. So it's not just about the spiritual. It's also about the physical. It's also about the emotional. It's also about uh, the, the, the mental, right? The, the soul has, has all these aspects to it. It is, it is bringing them all together. It's, it's like a lens that we view this through. But think about, our, again, our educational system. We love specialization. Aside from like the classical model or newer integrative models that, that seek to integrate, We've been so focused on research, research and specialization, uh, which has continued this trajectory of siloing things. And we all been, we've all been affected by it, guys. And so you tend to silo your life. You tend to segment your soul. You tend to segregate things in different spheres of your life. But integration and integrity are key for experiencing God's love, then loving God, then loving others. And David Brooks, he, in his book, The Second Mountain, he says... Um, as a result of this, our society places an overemphasis on deconstructing rather than building up because we're trying to get to the segments. So rather than building up to this bigger thing, we're, we're, we're deconstructing. And, and because of that, he says, our, our, sorry, our society is information rich but meaning poor. And so we've missed something here when, we, when we've missed the soul. I, I would actually add on to that and I would say uh, we've focused more on the mind, which we're going to talk about next week as well. Um, and we've reduced and neglected the soul, which encompasses and directs the mind. 
And so the soul is this integrative piece. So this morning, the question is, how do you love God with all your soul? How do you do this part of you that integrates all other dimensions of you to make one life? How do you love God with all your soul? Well, here in Luke 10, Jesus starts with the beauty and the mystery of the gospel. Here's the beautiful part. It's possible today for you to experience God's love, God's perfect, undying, abounding, always chasing after us type of love that never fails. It's possible. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus starts out with that. And it's possible for you to share that love with others. Oh, guys, that life is the abundant life. That's what Jesus is setting up here. But to be clear, and again, I'm going to say this a lot through this sermon. We're going to talk about this next week. Uh, to be clear, though, this is not about you increasing your love. So don't hear me say, oh, I just need to love God more. Hear me say, you are unequipped, maybe even ill-equipped, to do that on your own. You, you can't just will yourself to love God more, okay? This is, has to start with experiencing the love of God. It's where Jesus starts. So uh, this means that if you're to increase your exposure to God's love, well, you got to open your heart, mind, soul, strength, all these spheres, your family sphere, your job sphere, your, uh, your viewing choices, your, your nutrition choices, your, your listening choices, your finances, all these things are open up to God's love, which means that when that integration happens, there's direction and, uh, from God's love forward. And Jesus, here's the mystery of the gospel, so I said the beauty and the mystery. The mystery is... He starts with integrating something that was pretty separate in his culture. Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and non-Jews. More specifically here, Jews, the Israelites, and their arch nemesis, the Samaritans. And then he, he tells us a story. And he says, first of all, Remember, he's talking to, this lawyer is talking to him, asking him, Jesus questions. And uh, he says, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 29, the lawyer, he says, well, desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, well, well who, who's my neighbor? Who, who, is, who is my neighbor? If I'm going to love my neighbor, who is, who is my labor? Uh, who's my neighbor? And in what's implicit in this is the lawyer, he expresses a desire to love his neighbor, depending on who his neighbor is. It's as if he has the right to choose who to love and who to show love to and who not to show God's love to. Like that's his choice. Like he's earned that. And he says, who is my neighbor? When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he doesn't say, well, how? How do I do that, Jesus? I, I, wanna, I want to do that. He says, well, no, tell me, Jesus, who do I have to share that with? Who is my neighbor? Guys, God doesn't do that. Well, the main reason is he is love, as John says in, in 1 John. 
He is love. So God doesn't do that. But can you imagine if God did that? If God, if God picked and, and chose who he shared his love with? I think sometimes we wish God did that. Because I think sometimes we think, well, I'm deserving of God's love, but that person over there who is the other, who is different from me, who, uh, you know, is a murderer or is a criminal or um, in, uh, traffics people or enslaves people or uh, molests people or, you know, name your thing. And we say, well, they're, they're, not, they're not deserving God's love. I've never done anything like that. They're, they're not really deserving of God's love because um, they've done some egregious things. So sometimes I think we're just, we're just like the lawyer. We think, well, I wish God would just choose not to show his love to some people and lavish it on the rest of us who are, who are all good and perfect, right? And, uh, and I think if you, if you feel like you don't think that way, evaluate this. How well do you love your enemy? How well do you even love your neighbor? Right, like, so in, like, almost unconsciously, implicitly, we kind of think that. Some of you guys, on the other hand, think, well, I'm not even worthy of God's love. I'm unworthy. And so you're not even worried about the other people. You're just saying to yourself, I'm not worthy of God's love. And here's the beauty and the mystery of the gospel. We are all worthy of the love of God. God's love is accessible for all of us. Jesus made a way for that. Jesus made the way for that. Now we access the love of God through God's demonstration of love, which is Jesus Christ giving himself up for us. Guys, Perfect picture of God's love there. But we're really kind of all just like the lawyer here. And in this context, uh, Jesus is speaking not just to one lawyer. He's, he's speaking to a bunch of them who are just like, who, who are just like this because we're all in our sinful nature. And, and so this, this context here, lots going on here. The, the, this passage in Luke 10 on the Samaritan is right in the middle of this larger thing that Luke is developing on Jews and Gentiles, on, on Israelites and Samaritans. And so in Luke 9, you see this in verses 51 through 56, Jesus approaches a Samaritan village. Well, they don't want him. They don't accept him. Well, and then two, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, uh, they say, hey, Jesus, basically, should we, should, should we call down fire from heaven and destroy this village because they rejected you? And, and Jesus says, whoa, whoa. Um, he corrects and he trains them and he teaches them and he rebukes them. And he says, I didn't come to destroy people's lives. I came to save them. I want that to be clear. Like, like just because they're Samaritans doesn't mean we just, we just destroy them. Like in, and Jesus is in this culture where, where the Israelites are pitted against the Samaritans and, and vice versa. And then Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 70 or the 72, uh, which corresponds to the table of nations in Genesis 10, the descendants of Noah. Uh, after the flood, uh, which is 70 or 72 nations, 
Uh, for those of you guys who love Bible study and things, um, the textual evidence for the, the number 70 versus 72 is it's pretty equal with a slight tilt towards the latter. Um, but that uh, those same variations in this passage in Luke 10 appear in Genesis 10. So um, just to put your mind at ease, 70, 72, uh, it, it, uh, they, they correspond to one another here. And, and so you have there Genesis 10, this table of nations, which is the nations starting out. And then you have Luke 10 uh, with this emphasis uh, corresponding to the nations, right? So Jesus is uh, the mystery of the gospel that Jesus starts with here is starting to be made known to us that this gospel isn't just for the Jews, isn't just for the Israelites. It's, it's for the entire world, all the nations, and then he goes into verses 13 through 16 in, in, in Luke 10. And Jesus uh, rebukes two Israelite cities. And he honors, so Chorazin, uh, Bethsaida. And then he honors Tyre and Sidon, which are two Gentile cities. So you, again, you have this juxtaposition here. And he says, if, if the works I did in, in these Jewish cities would have been done in these Gentile cities, they would have already repented and believed. And so he, re, he rebukes them, and he's showing a bigger picture of the gospel here. And then, and then you get to this passage that we are in here in, in Luke 10, where you have uh, the, uh, the, the Jewish lawyer asking a question, and then, and of course, Jesus gives this story on the Samaritan. And then after, and, and guys, this is the only gospel where this story is, is told. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or John. So it's only here. So Luke is doing something very intentional. Also, in Luke 17, uh, he, he gives a story of the 10 lepers. And we think of the lepers back then, um, like if you were a leper, you were, you were segregated, you were excised, you were prevented from worshiping with the community of faith. You could not approach uh, certain things. You, you were out, like back in the Old Testament, you were outside a camp. Um, there, there were, it, it was bad to be a leper, have that skin disease back then because there's an unholiness about it. And so when Jesus heals lepers, guys, he is establishing a new order, a new kingdom. He, he's, he's doing something new, new creations, right? So he does this in Luke 17 and the only one to come back, so there's 10 of them, nine of them don't come back to Jesus. Only one comes back. Well, guess what race, ethnicity, culture that one is? It's a Samaritan. And so Luke is doing something here, big, big picture. So verse 30, verse 30 to 32. Again, guys, um, you have to piece these sermons together. We've been building on, on, on things here. So I'm not going to go deep into uh, everything here. We're going to go deep into some things and then uh, brush over some other things that we'll deal with next week. Okay, so verse 30, 32, it says, Jesus replied, of course, he tells a story. <laughs> uh, the, the lawyer says, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus doesn't directly answer the question. He tells a story because later on in verse 36, he's going to switch the question. He's going to ask the lawyer a question and get right to his heart. So he starts with the story. I love this. Um, if you've been around me much, uh, this is <laughs> this is kind of my mo. I, I, I love storytelling. So he says, "A man 
Going down from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among robbers who, stri who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite who came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. And church, there's a lot of background here. There's a lot of background on Samaritans, and uh, you can find a lot of that in you know these pages of the scriptures back in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. You can find a lot of, you can get the background on that and and, and the reasons why and all that. Basically, Samaritans were were kind of half breeds. Um, it's like they're not full Gentiles, they're not full Jews. They're just kind of non-Jews. Like they they were, uh, but they were enemies. And and a lot of this will tell you why that's the case if you're wondering about that. Um, but suffice it to say that they hated each other, they despised each other, and actually much of that animosity originated from the Israelites and their kind of perceived ethnic and religious superiority. Now, that's not that's not to to bash the Israelites here because. You have to know that there's so much history here. There's there's uh, exiles that happen. There's there's worshiping of other gods that happen. There's disobeying God's commands that happen. Uh, that kind of leads to to um, to this animosity. Uh, so I tell you that because when Jesus starts with but or a Samaritan, and he makes the Samaritan the hero of this story. Guys, it is completely countercultural. It is the upside-down kingdom. He just flipped it on its head. He's completely reversed expectations. He is like this is jarring. He just jarred it. Like no one's thinking he's going to say, "But a Samaritan." Everyone's thinking he's going to say, uh, "But a name your other Jewish person," you know. But why didn't he just say Moses? Why didn't he just say Elijah? Why, like, but a Samaritan? Jesus, like, really? Um, and guys, uh, to, to say, you know, the subtitle here, which is actually Good Samaritan, quote unquote, isn't actually in the text, uh, but the subtitle is Good Samaritan. We kind of know it culturally as the Good Samaritan passage. Um, that would be an oxymoron. Like, like, those would cancel each other out in the Israelite mind. It'd be like saying good terrorist because that just doesn't go because by definition, uh, the actions of a terrorist are bad and evil. And that's just how Samaritans are viewed. And, and so that's why a passage like John 4, when Jesus goes to the well and asks for water, is such a big deal because he's doing that with a Samaritan. We, in our culture today, we kind of try to make a big deal that, oh, this was a woman. Now, there's some things there, but um, the even bigger deal in that day was, was this is a Samaritan woman, right? Like, so here, uh, he starts with a Samaritan, which, which get, makes me think this question, can we actually love our neighbors as ourselves? Right, that's the whole point of this. That's, that's what Jesus is trying to explain. And guys, that's the easy commandment. Jesus says that the spontaneous character of the kingdom is manifested not when you love your neighbor. It's when you love your enemy, when you love the person who persecutes you, when you, when you love the one that you think is the other or that is the perceived other. And we can't actually do this unless we experience God's love. Again, we're going to talk about that a lot more next week.
Jesus goes on. Uh, he talks about the Samaritan. Those next few verses, I'm going to say it again, 34 to 35. We're talking about next week. So just jump to 36. 36, after this, uh, so the Samaritan, I'll just summarize it. He takes care of this guy. The priest didn't, the Levite didn't. Uh, the Samaritan comes along and he does everything above and beyond for this guy who's been a victim of, of this crime. And then Jesus says to the lawyer, this is where he flips the question, right? So he's doing what he did before, he answering a question with a question after he told a long story. <laughs> Love this. He says, well, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? With Jesus' question, he doesn't show that the, okay, yeah, with Jesus' question, he, he changes it from passive to active. He doesn't show that the victim and the one in need was the neighbor, although, sure, he is too. But he asks, who acted like a neighbor? Who lived out their neighborness or their neighborhood? Who lived that out? Who, who proved themselves to actually be the neighbor. So Jesus changes the question from, well, who is my neighbor, a passive one, to an active one. Who's gonna prove themselves to be a neighbor? He puts the onus on us. He puts the onus on the lawyer, on us, to prove ourselves to be the neighbor. We don't wait for someone else to be the neighbor. When you've experienced the love of God, when you love God, and your soul is integrated, your life is integrated, your, 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 your heart, your strength, your mind, you're loving God with, and your soul, we don't wait for someone to show us they're our neighbor before we love them. We prove ourselves to be the neighbor. We walk forward in action. We walk forward in, in this, this, uh, this kingdom privilege to even make our perceived enemies our neighbors. And we're gonna talk about, I keep on saying perceived enemies because we're gonna talk about that more. Guess, guess, guess when? next week, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll hit that more. But here's, here's the question for us. What does that mean then for your soul? What does that mean for how you love and how you live? A couple months ago, I turned 40. And when people typically get to my age, uh, they, they consider, because... I thought about this, right? Um, I've lived pretty much half my life, um, you know, give or take. Um, and so when people get to my age, it's like, you really start assessing life. And that's when midlife crises ensue. And, uh, and I would call that a soul crisis. But you start asking questions like, is this the life that I wanted? Is this a life that I thought I was gonna live? Is this a life that I dreamed of when I was in my 20s or when I was in my teenage years? I thought it was gonna be different. And because I talk to people like this all the time, who are like, ah, oh. and not in their 40s, in their 20s and 30s even, and then above, like, this is a uh, problem across the board. And, and, and people are thinking, ah, oh, this isn't how I thought things would turn out. 
And you, you ask, and, and questions are like, well, am I actually content? Are you? Are, are you content? Are you, are you, did, did you think this was going to work out this way? Will what you have ever be enough? Is your life what you thought it would be? Will, will Jesus ever be enough? Is Jesus actually enough for you? Is God's love actually enough for you? And for the fortunate few who start asking these questions and wrestling with them, uh, you may say your life is greater than you ever thought it would be. I said this a few months ago that God's dreams, or sorry, God's realities are greater than your dreams. And, and I've seen that. I've, I've, I feel like I experience that every day. And for many of you, um, you might not even be asking those questions yet. Um, but the key is not to wait till you have to ask those questions. The key is to think about those now, wrestle those now. I thought about those when I was a teenager and in my 20s. You want to kind of preemptively think about those, not wait till you have to, till things didn't turn out the way you thought they were going to turn out. And for a lot of you, you're, you, you just kind of settle. And you use my, my, my hated phrase, my, just, it is what it is. Well, that's just how it turned out. It is what it is. It's just my life, you know. But God wants so much more for you. God wants more for your life. He wants more for your soul. He has invited you into the abundant life, but you have to open yourself up to experiencing God's love. It starts by experiencing your eternal vocation, like we talked about two weeks ago, that, that you experience God's love, that, that, that causes you to love God with everything you are, in, fully integrated, and then it causes you as an overflow, it just is easily shared with others. You just love others. Everyone's your neighbor. No one's your enemy. That's how you love your enemies. No one's your enemy because everyone's your neighbor. And that love of God just flows out because God is love and our identity is in him and he flows out of us. And so there's three things I want to give you quickly out of Psalm 37 to help you experience this. This is Psalm 37, one of my favorite psalms in all of scripture. The first one is focus. This is out of Psalm 37 verses 1 and 2. David writing, he says, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the herb. He says, focus, focus. Number one, focus. Don't worry about those guys. Don't worry about who's your enemy and who's your neighbor. Don't worry about the evildoers. Don't worry about people uh, prospering and being successful when you think you're not. Don't fret about that. Don't be envious. Focus on God, experience his love. That's why Jesus says in Luke 10 that this is the greatest commandment. It encompasses, directs, informs, guides all other commandments. It is the primary one. That is your vocation. Number two, ownership. Ownership. Verses three three and four, he says, trust in the Lord. Guys, these are some of my favorite verses in all of scripture. Trust in the Lord, do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Trust. Guys, ownership requires responsibility and action. You have to take responsibility. You have to commit. You have to take action. He says, do good. Dwell in the land. 
And what that word for befriend faithfulness is, is like feast on faithfulness. It should be your food. It should be your sustenance. Faithfulness should be. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Remember, you're not a hireling. In the kingdom of God, you're a son. You are a child of God. You have son status as a co-heir with the son. Stop acting like a hireling. Take some ownership. Trust, dwell, feast, delight. The action in Luke 10 is one of mercy. Show mercy, befriend faithfulness, do good. What are you trusting? Where are you dwelling? How are you feasting? What are you delighting in? Those are questions of ownership. Have you taken ownership of something else or are you taking ownership in the kingdom? You've been given it. It's, at, it's, it's there. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just reach out and touch it and you can grasp it. And then verses five through seven in Psalm 37 for number three, integration. We start with integration. We're going to end with integration. Remember what, that, what Dallas Willis says, that, that your soul is that part of your being that integrates all other aspects of life. And in verses 34 to 35 of, of Luke 10, uh, when the Samaritan starts taking care of uh, the victim there, it's not something that he felt like he needed to do, that, that he was required to do, uh, or that was separate even from what he was going to Jericho to do. It was just a natural outflowing of who he was. It just came out of him. It was almost unconscious. He just did it. He didn't sit there and think, oh, well, he just did it. Do you have separate spheres of your life? That's what I'm, when we talked about that earlier, uh, when, when integration, uh, a lot of us have separate spheres of our life. You know, your church friends are here, your work friends are there, your uh, job is here, your family is there, your faith is uh, over here, maybe it's somewhere over there sometimes, uh, maybe it's not even touching these other spheres. Um, some of these spheres may be a bit concentric, uh, your entertainment is over here, you know, apart from your faith. So like, this doesn't affect that. Um, but guys, God's love infiltrates all spheres of your life. It should. So that means your spheres are actually, should be, on top of each other. One circle. Because God's love is infiltrating all those. Remember, your eternal vocation is not about what you do. It's about who you are. And so in different spheres, what you do may change, but who you are should never change. Who you are stays the same in all those spheres. That is an integrated life. That is integrity. Do you know why you have an issue with integrity? Why your yes isn't always yes? And why your no isn't always no, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? It's because you live a segregated life. It's because your life is siloed, it's segmented. If your life was like this integrated, it wouldn't be as much of an issue for your yes to always be yes and for your no to always be no, to live a life of integrity. You know, the world sees us and they don't see, see lives of integration. They see, they see lives of separation. So integration is key to experiencing God's love and sharing that love with others. David Brooks, he says this in his book, The Second Mountain. David Brooks is a cultural commentator. He says, consider the possibility 
that a creature of infinite love has made a promise to us. Consider the possibility that we are the ones committed to the objects of an infinite commitment. And that commitment is to redeem us and bring us home. That's what I'm offering you in Jesus today. That's what Jesus gives us. He is the door to experiencing God's love. He's the way to love God. And he's the way and the door to share that love with others. He's why we love. He's why we live. Jesus, thank you for your storytelling. Thank you for the beauty and the mystery of the gospel that you showed us this morning. May we open ourselves up to the integrated life where we experience your love, God, in all spheres. So that our love isn't segregated from anybody or anything, but that we are part of reconciling all things to you, God, through Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Make us people like that and make us a church like that in your name. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.